This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. You're back. You're listening to the VPZD Show. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor here at UCSF, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Z-Dog, Zubin Damania. Zubin, it's great to hear from you. Dude, brother, they call me Z-Dog in Canada, which is 30% more cool. Yeah. Z. <laughs> I, I look, dude, I look, I look forward to this all week, man. Is that bad? Is that a bad sign of my mental state that I just want to talk to you? Is that like I, I, I weird? I think it's a warning sign if you want to talk to me. Yeah, it's a warning sign. <laughs> it's a cry for help, some would say, a cry for help. But, you know, I look forward to it too, my friend, because, uh, you know, we have a good conversation. And what is this life but uh, conversations with friends and colleagues? I mean, isn't that what makes life, uh, life so great? Ultimately, it is. And it seems like some of our audience actually agrees. They really like sitting in. They really like the thing we did with Marty. But what isn't interesting is like, you know, again, 95% positive feedback, but then you get those critical bits. Some of them are just, you know, noise from people that are triggered by whatever it is we said, whether we, you know, they, they feel like we're making fun of pronouns or something when Marty said he his pronouns were unboosted male mm-hmm. uh, or whether something more significant. So I thought, you know, maybe we should kick this off. I got two emails from healthcare professionals. One kind of really more aligned with what we've been talking about, and the other really quite upset with us. Mm. Should I? Can, can I? Can I hit you with some of these? I'd love See to hear it. I haven't heard it before, and um, I, so I, I, you get my you get my unfiltered reaction. Let's do it. Perfect. Let's do the first one, which is a little more aligned with kind of what we've been saying. Feedback so sandwich. I like is... a feedback sandwich. Give me the bread first <laughs> before you give me the crap. Okay, got it. I'll give you the bread. Give me it's the a, bread. It's, a, it, it, it's an Oreo. It's all the sweetness <laughs> inside, but then I'm going to give you that nasty brown cookie on the, the black cookie. I on love the, the Oreo cookie. You all don't right. love that cookie? Get out of here. Yeah, get out. I, I, I love all cookies. Okay, let's not, okay, let's not okay. lie to ourselves. All right, so I get a, a message. Uh, I'm an internist hospitalist, uh, teach at a local med school. Mm-hmm. I feel like wanting to engage in a nuanced and reasonable conversation surrounding COVID in particular is equivalent to being a flat earther. So mm-hmm. if you have that position, you're like a flat earther. One of my pediatrician colleagues was literally removed from all teaching duties without any communication or due process because she dared to bring up that COVID vaccines can have side effects and that she wasn't convinced that all children should receive one. Students reported her because they didn't like what she said and she was immediately removed. In the hospital, I have to wear a gold star on my name tag to show that I'm vaccinated. If I choose not to wear the gold star, I may not have access to certain patient care areas, even though I'm vaccinated, had COVID prior to my vaccine series, and wear a mask. 
the medical school is still doing remote learning despite a 98% vaccination rate among faculty, staff, and students, and the school's leadership don't think it's, quote, safe enough for them to work on campus. So they continue to work from home, while my ass as a clinical teacher and practicing physician, on the other hand, is clearly expendable. The hospital still won't allow visitors to the inpatient floor, and I have to make a daily argument that my patient dying from cancer should be allowed to see his wife in person. Both are vaccinated and asymptomatic for any infectious mm-hmm. process, by the way, and not over a tablet. I feel like we're in the twilight zone. Thank you for helping me remember that this shit is crazy and I am not. Hmm. Thoughts? Oh, wow. That's really interesting. And I'm wondering if you mind going point by point, because I actually think there's something to say about each of these points, which are really important. But I guess first I'll comment about the overall aesthetic and the overall points of the theme of the essay or of this um, email. And I think what this person is saying is that, um, you know, there there's a space um, between um, between uh, being a puritanical, fervent uh, proponent of the most restriction all the time, um, even to the point of irrational restrictions that hurt people more than they help the cause, and on the other extreme is denying that this virus is a threat. And there's a lot of space in between, and this person is asking, why are we not allowed to explore some of the space in between? And I think you and I are really interested in the space where let's take the virus very seriously, let's do everything we can to minimize harm, and by harm we mean global harm, harm not just from the virus, but from the restrictions. And let's think about it in an evidence-based and rational way. Um, let's find some middle ground. Uh, but I think so often that the answer is in response to the people who maybe trivialize it is to do everything excessively. Um, and this person is sort of, I think, concerned about that. Why don't you run through those specific things that she mentioned or yeah. he or she mentioned? Yeah, that's excellent. So, you know, the, the first part was what you pretty much covered, which is, you know, being equivalent to being a flat earther. So you're considered some conspiracy lunatic if you inhabit that central space, that alt middle perspective on this. That we kind of went through. But Yeah, but I guess the only thing I'll add to that point is that um, it, it kind of ties into something we said in a last episode, which is that one of the ways in which tribal beliefs become reinforced is that anyone who strays outside of those beliefs has to be ostracized from the group. That's yes. what keeps that, that belief set together. And so I think she's... Or he or she, uh, uh, he or she is correct in the assertion that it seems like they come down on those people like a ton of bricks. They have to in order to maintain the herd. Um, so I think that's true. Bingo, yeah. bingo, bingo. And that goes to the second point. The pediatrician colleague that was removed from teaching duties without any communication or due process because the students were triggered by her saying, hey, you know, I'm not convinced that every single child needs to be vaccinated. So I guess I would say about that is I think um, I think. Uh, Reasonable people can disagree on some part of the 5 to 11-year-old proposition, and the place I think that this person would have the strongest argument would be a healthy 5-year-old who has uh, not overweight, no medical problems, healthy, active 5-year-old who has already had SARS-CoV-2 and cleared the virus. Um, uh, I think in the randomized control trial that was done by Pfizer, those patients in both arms, vaccine or no vaccine, did not have incident symptomatic SARS-CoV-2. And so this person, I think, does have some place there they can make a strong case. Um, uh, do I agree with them? Maybe not. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in thinking about ways to um, pursue vaccination with less harm um, or ways we can generate better data. Um, but um, but I, I think it's certainly not a position that you should be ostracized from the community for holding. Um, and, 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 and furthermore, I, I am troubled by the fact that we have a created a system where the person who is the most junior, um, the person who 
potentially has the least experience in biomedicine is the person who is able to make this adjudication about this person's career fate. Um, it's sort of an inversion of power, knowledge, expertise. I'm not one to believe that just because you've trained for many years, you are uh, a sage. But I do think it's problematic when the, the bounds of what is acceptable debate are policed by the people who are most nascent in a field. I think that's very problematic. And so I agree. It's a huge problem. Yeah, and I, I'll take it another step. I, I agree. I like there's a lot of nuance around oh, kids and vaccination. Okay, but well, that's fine. What what bothers me with this is that without due process, teaching duties were removed from a, a, a pediatrician because, and I'm going to go hard on this. Okay, you you don't you may disagree, but because children who've been overparented, overhelicoptered, overcoddled, who are fragile, who are triggered by different opinions that they may not agree with, that now consider that opinion outside of tribe, outgroup, and therefore evil, can actually have enough power to remove that person from teaching duties, regardless of their other expertise, experience, and wisdom. And I think that's that's like Maoist cultural revolution level insane. And until we realize that this isn't isolated, this is happening throughout our educational system, the subversion of the educational system, to go from a competition of ideas where we debate, where we use our words, right, mm -hmm. to a place where words are dangerous, where children are children, and they are behaving as children, are to be protected Zubin, from I, this. I, I agree with your premise in the sense that I think that the response from the trainees, if that is the case, uh, is, uh, is, is, is too exuberant. They're stifling somebody who has a viewpoint that I think Maybe a viewpoint they disagree with. That's okay. But it's not a viewpoint they should extinguish with the brute force of, of these kinds of punishments. I agree with you. But I have to say, and I wonder how you feel about this. He, I'll tell you who has failed. I don't think it's the students. The failure is the administrators who repeatedly capitulate yes, to these yes, demands. Yes, yes, it's the deans. Yes. They fail. And you know, why, you know why they fail? It's the leaders in charge they fail. I'll tell you why they fail. All they care about is their own cushy jobs. They don't stand for academic freedom. They don't stand for freedom of discourse and freedom of debate. In fact, the only way they got to their position is by biting their tongue for 25 years. And so they have never yes. known what it means to be courageous in thought. So they have failed. They have allowed and indulged these trainees in this manner so that they have become, I think, rather greedy in terms of what their demands are and demanding that this pediatrician not be allowed to teach. Um, so it is the failure of the administration and that failure it happens in every domain. It's happening at college campuses. It's happening at uh, companies. It's happening. It is. It is giving away the power of leadership um, to uh, it, it, in an effort of self-preservation. And ultimately, they don't see what's coming. There is nothing that that they will eventually get you. You know, it, you're not preserving yourself. You're creating a situation where you are more vulnerable as a leader. So even if you were just a selfish eat leader, you shouldn't capitulate these demands. The last thing I'd say to you is look at Yale Law. Yale Law School had. Um, that 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 this big brouhaha. By the way, mm. these are lawyers. Of all the faults of lawyers, there's one thing lawyers have uh, head and shoulders above biomedicine, which is they know how they know how to debate each other. They know how mm. to have they, they have faculty who really disagree on issues that really matter to a lot of people, and yet they allow that in university. So they know what it's like to have disagreement. Yeah. Okay, yet in Yale Law School, because this student said we're going to have a party at the trap house, um, he was asked to apologize. Um, he didn't mean it as a racially insensitive thing. I'm not sure it is or isn't. I don't. I'm not an expert on that kind of lingo um, but uh, the the dean of the Med of the Yale law school authorized his condemnation 
nation. They allowed the mob to burn this kid, uh, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. Um, so it is the leaders who are failing because they are indulging this behavior. And it is, a, it is, a, it is, it sickens me. And in fact, I think it's behavior that means that you should, you're, you're not worthy of being a leader if you indulge these kinds of things. Uh, oh, I, 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 I agree. And this is the thing, when I say, when I call these these guys children and I and I don't mean to actually demean them what I'm saying is we have created this generation meaning the parents the boomers us gen x we've created and enabled this generation to be fragile and it this is a sign of their fragility that they find strength in actually overthrowing ideas that that they don't that make them uncomfortable that make them feel fragile and this is happening like you said throughout all of this. So here's the thing. Like, I think they should definitely have, like, students should have a voice. Absolutely. But this is ridiculous. This now, is ridiculous. here's another thing. Yeah. I just, just as a point of reference, when I was in college at UC Berkeley in the 90s, right, the era of the advent of PC and all of that, it was, you know, it was 1991 to 94 when I was there. I did a, like a three year stint because I wanted to get the hell out as fast as I could because I got tired of it quick. And what I got tired of was this idea that um, there was this monolithic kind of culture, but there really wasn't. If you actually talk to students, they have all kinds of different ideas. But one of the interesting things was Peter Duesberg, the uh, researcher, the molecular biology researcher at the time, whose theory, very provocative at the time, that HIV wasn't the cause of AIDS, uh, that it was just a bystander, and that you know AIDS was caused by you know gay-related behaviors and drug abuse and all this other kind of morally tinged stuff. Now, this was, you know, again clearly debunked, not true. But at the time, he was not D, he wasn't deplatformed. He still taught a class. I, he actually lectured in one of my classes and students would vocally disagree. And it was a debate and it was this, and people were angry, but no one was like, dude, fire him. You know, no one imagined they could get him deplatformed. That wasn't even on the table because you want to actually debate these ideas. You I know, mean, but I, I think I, that's changed. That, that's changed a lot. And I think you don't just want to debate these ideas. You want to win. When I was growing you up, win. you want to win. There's so many issues I wanted to win on. I wanted to win to teach people that the cost of cancer drugs was too much. I wanted to win that the FDA's approval standards were too low for cancer drugs. I wanted to win that we need robust evidence-based medicine. I didn't want people to be silenced. I wanted them to be defeated. It's a better victory. Mm. It's the victory that matters. I'll say one more thing. Fragility. Um, this is not a profession that can tolerate a lot of fragility. I'll give you one example. Not at all. I'll give you one, just, just one example. If you're an oncologist, there's, the day will come. You've got to walk into someone's room and you've got to tell them that there are no further treatments that would provide them a benefit and that they are dying and um, that, that, uh, that the best we can do is try to um, ease their suffering and provide them comfort. You've got to tell that person. And you're going to have to have a conversation with somebody who you've known for years, um, who you may even in some way love um, and they're a part of your family. Uh, they feel as if you feel close to them in a way you haven't felt close to anybody because you've cared for them in their most vulnerable state and they've told you things they've never told anybody. You gotta go into the room and do that. And then you gotta come out of that room and 30 seconds later you gotta walk into the next person's room and you gotta tell them that the treatment was a success and that if that fingers crossed they are cured of their disease. So you got to come out of this room that is an agon moment of agony and go into this room which is a moment of ecstasy and you've got to recompose yourself in 30 seconds um that's not that's that's that it takes something from you to be able to do that that's what you need to teach you need to teach that something that allows you to go out there for 30 seconds pull yourself together and go in the next room and give it the best news of their lives 
from the worst news to the best news. Medicine is a is a wash with that. In an emergency room, you'll see the best case and then the worst case, the most horrific case, the most um, heartening case. You'll have saves, you'll have losses. If you are not emotionally ready to be able to bring that, you're not failing, you're failing your patience. You're failing the second person if you can't pull yourself together. You're failing the first person if you allow the enthusiasm to bleed into that visit. You're failing your patience. So we need doctors to rise above these kinds of emotions. Yes, lots of things in life hurt. Lots of things are are obnoxious and painful. There are lots of problems. The world is full of problems. But when you're a doctor, you need to learn to transcend some of that. You need to learn to have thick skin. You need to learn to, I don't know, um, have, have resiliency, a deep resiliency. Because not for you, but for the person who needs you. And they're the vulnerable person, not you. And so I do think this is a, it's, a, it's the worst capitulation we've seen. It will lead to bad medicine. It will lead to more burnout, actually, because you're not giving them the tools to conquer burnout in their heart. Um, it will lead to more staff shortages. It will lead to people quitting 10 years. It will lead to this culture of all I want to do is, you know, earn enough money to retire at 37 or whatever. Um, it's it's going to lead to lots of bad things. Uh, we're, we're losing, uh, I think, a huge part of what it means to be a doctor. Man, that, that was beautifully said. And, and I'll, I'll even add a couple points here. Imagine you make a mistake that kills someone. Yes. And you've been raised this way, like we've created this generation that's so fragile. And then that reality hits you, right? And you can't own it. You can't introspect. You can't seek support. You can't understand it. You can't apologize to the patient's family and face them eye to eye because you have never ever understood what it means to actually inhabit that space. And, and, and I'll tell you, privately, program directors around the country message me and say, we're seeing the, the students now that just can, they're not going to be good doctors. Yeah. And we've, we're to blame for this. We're to blame for this. And they have all the power. So the faculty are afraid to review them because it, 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 accurately, because if they do, they're going to get feedback that's going to wreck, derail their promotions. So it's this real weird power dynamic that we've allowed to happen. And it doesn't, it, it's, it's hurting the students. It's hurting, that's the it's thing. hurting the students. Yeah, of course. And I yeah, mean, that's the, 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 the only thing I'd say about that is that um, uh, you're right. There will be a moment in the lives of most doctors, perhaps many doctors uh, with rare, with the experience of certain specialties, but that you may be uh, directly or indirectly responsible for someone's death. And here's the thing. If you are, uh, I think these days some people quit over one death in their career. That's not the answer. It's not to throw your career yeah. away. It's not to quit. It's not yeah. to say the field's not for you. It's to get, it's to, it's to really agonize about why it happened, what you could do better and go back out there and do it again and again and again. Uh, by again, I mean uh, doing the right thing, not hopefully the bad outcome. Um, but, but it's, right. it's to overcome it, to learn from it. Um, there's no great doctor who quit after the first bad case. It's it's the great doctors who learn from it and never make the mistake again and allow their mistake to teach the next generation. So anyway, we can go. Let's go to the next point because we're going to. And one last thing yes. I want to say, because you said resiliency. I would go a step further and use Nassim Taleb's anti-fragility. Mm. What we need is a, is a group of people in, in medicine and beyond that get stronger, that actually grow like an organism does from stress. And so you make a mistake, you have to go through that whole process. You, you don't just learn from it. You actually have a set of tools now that allow you to understand your practice better and teach others. And that's anti-fragility. So we, we need that is what we need. 
All right. So next the book. next yeah. <laughs> the next message. Now this is this is interesting, and it's going to be hard to parse because it's so long, which means the person cares a lot. When I get these long messages, people really no, care. no, no, no. I want to go through the other points in this the first letter. You want to go to the oh, next? There's one? More. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's more. Yeah. Okay. Okay. okay, sorry, okay. Let me go back. Let me go back to it. Let me go back to it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, okay. I, I, so we talk about the pediatrician. Yeah, yeah. Now let's see. Next oh, the medical school doing remote learning okay. despite yes, that's a mistake. Yeah. Okay, let's. I mean, uh, I, I've written articles about that. This is a, this is a this is a delusion. I mean, um, once you get a bunch of kids between the ages of twenty two and twenty six on average, maybe twenty eight, you know, maybe thirty. There's some older people, but once you get these healthy kids, mostly um, mostly healthy, um, mostly ninety percent vaccinated, um, that's that's as good as life will ever be. It's not going to be better. It's not going to be better five years from now. It's not going to be better 10 years from now. So if you want to do remote learning because you're worried about something, then you're going to be remote learning for the next decade. It's not going to get any better. They've done the risk reduction, which is the vaccine. It's time to move on. This is a disservice. Also, what is the downside to remote learning? The mental health of these people is suffering. In fact, yeah. the fact they're doing remote learning makes them more likely, I think, to expel the pediatrician for the um, harmful viewpoint. It's because they don't have normal human interaction. They're forgetting what it's like. So I think it's inexcusable. Yeah, great point. They're not there. They've, they've dehumanized there. They've this dehumanized person. person. Yeah. They've dehumanized yeah. this person. Yeah. They're not even there. Um, this is terrible. This is terrible. And, and I think this person's other point was, I'm coming into work, but they are not even coming in. Yes, I mean, it, it, this person is true. Like, obviously, the attending is more um, necessary for the care of the patient than the student, arguably. Um, but... Um, um, uh, we're, we're teaching, we're teaching a culture. We're teaching a culture of what does it mean to be a doctor? And yes, this pandemic was terrible. And yes, there's some risk, but there'll be worse things in the future. There'll be a new, there'll be new pandemics. Um, the culture of medicine is it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bad it is. It doesn't matter if it's SARS-CoV-1 bad. It doesn't matter if it's a bubonic plague bad. You get to work, you go to work. Why? Because when you signed up for this job, you didn't sign up for perfect um, safety. You're taking risks. Every time you put a central line in somebody who has a communicable disease, a bloodborne disease, you're taking a risk. This is a profession where you take risks. That's part of it. So go in there and yeah. learn to start taking the risks because that's the oath. There's something more to you in this life. And I, I find it, I, yeah. I, I have nothing else to say. I, I find it astonishing. Uh, I, I, and I'll say our fear, this, this irrational fear of death has paralyzed us. Listen, we're all going to die eventually, but yeah. this is the fundamental thing here that somehow, you know, people misunderstand that there are fates worse than death, like destroying a generation of healers by, mm -hmm. by miseducating mm -hmm. them, by, you know, by yeah. throwing them into virtual situations when it doesn't make sense. Now, okay, now let, 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 let's move, let's move to the next okay. piece of this because Sorry. the hospital still won't allow visitors to the inpatient Oh, come floor. on. Yeah. These, these yeah. It's the same. It's the same bureaucratic oh. weakness. Weak. Yeah, leadership weak. weakness. Weak and sick and out of touch. And if they were the ones who had to sit and tell a family that they cannot come and see their loved one, if the leader had to do that, do you think that policy would change the next day? Because they'd have to have those uncomfortable conversations that they're forcing our frontline nurses and doctors to have. Yeah. Like, this is a sickness in the head. Correct. And it's a, another ex expansive safetyism like it's the same with like you know her gold star badge she's like you have to put this gold star on to, to show that you're vaccinated even though there's like 98% vaccination rate and you know double triple vaccinated and had natural infection it, it's just like how, we're as good as we can get like how much more do you want you now, know let, let me play devil's think, advocate yeah. let me play devil's yeah what is that crap okay let me play devil's advocate for a second um, the devil's advocate position I want to play is 
Let, I mean, I mean, let's try. I mean, we're supposed to we're supposed to try to imagine what. Yes. The, what the, okay. Okay. So I mean, I think if you run a hospital, particularly if you run a nursing home, particularly if you have doctors who take care of very vulnerable people or nurses, yeah, you want those people to be vaccinated. Yes, to protect them and also to protect, I think, the patients. Um, yes, I think you want them to be vaccinated also in part to um to make sure um you have consistent staffing so that they're not getting sick and you know i mean because you need them they're i guess you know that's one of the reasons why healthcare people should be vaccinated which is like um yes it's to protect your patients a little bit but it's also so you can go do your job so you can go do your job right okay so i agree with that um and yes we should do things that i think make it fun and um, incentivize people to get vaccinated. Um, you know, and if, the, if they, if they want to give you, um, I don't know, uh, you know, some, some Starbucks gift cards or, you know, even some small tokens, it, it will be appreciated, I think. Um, and uh, 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 the star on the badge, the COVID stickers, I guess I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Um, right. And I don't have a problem that they're trying to do it. I guess the parts that I do have a problem with are when people become such zealots about it that they forget the overall goal, which is, yes, you want to get that number as high as possible, but some people are always going to have medical objections or religious objections. There might be somebody who had Guillain-Barre after a prior vaccine, and they may be reluctant to get this vaccine. And even some of those objections you may quibble with. You may say, "Mm, that's not a rock-solid reason not to do it, but I think we need to acknowledge that people should have some bodily autonomy. Um, And also, the perfect is always unattainable. You know, you'll never get 100% in, a, in anything in life. Um, so I think the parts of this equation that I think that I, I criticize, it's not that we criticize any incentive or any praise for being vaccinated. It's that we think it can go too far and you can become too much of a zealot. And the worst case scenario is you've got a hospital in Long Island that has to close, for instance, because 30% of the, fac, uh, the staff is not getting vaccinated after they've been working and some of many of whom have had COVID. I mean, the fact that there are no exemptions for natural immunity yeah, this will annoy people and it doesn't make a lot of sense and it's missing the forest for the trees sort of thing. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this. I think I'm very nuanced on this because I, I actually was a fan of influenza vaccine, um, the, w- the way they handle influenza vaccines in hospital settings. In other words, you have to get a flu shot unless you have a medical or religious exemption. And if you don't, then you got to wear a mask throughout the season, which is more of, you know, signaling than anything Correct. else. But at least, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, at okay, least yeah. it, yeah, at least it pushed people to, to mm-hmm, do this mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's like you said, it's two things, protect the patient and actually be able to come to work, right. you know, so that you don't, you know, you're less likely to get influenza say, you know, that, I think that is important. In fact, I remember my wife, when we were residents, you know, interns, you remember that whole like Jeopardy thing. Like if, mm-hmm. if, if a resident is sick, it is a disaster. Yeah, like everybody, is. you have to activate Jeopardy. It's a disaster. So she ended up dawdling on the flu shot for like a couple months, ended up getting flu. And the chief resident called her and bawled her out, was like, why didn't you get a flu shot? You're now Jeopardy's got to activate because you were too slow to get a flu. I mean, I was like, oh, crap, like that's brutal. But you know what? A little bit of that hazing every subsequent year, we're the first in line to get the flu shots. You know, know. (laughs) so, you know, I don't know. There's a you can make arguments against what I'm saying, but I actually I don't know. In my intuition, I I feel like I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying. And I think this is like the push for it. And I guess the one thing I'll add to what you're saying is that while the 
relative risk reduction of the flu shot year to year varies and is often lower this and is judged based on sort of a case control study rather than randomized trial in this case you have randomized trial higher efficacy so all of the things you're saying are even more true here right that's what i that's the point i want to make right like if you believe (laughs) those principles they're more true here so yeah okay right let's go to our next point yeah or yeah, her. yeah. Okay, I keep saying so, her, but do I know it's a woman? It could be. A, it could no, be. No, no. Okay. There's. We're gonna be. We're gonna use a pronoun. They. Here. Okay. Okay. Uh, so they, yeah. so they. Okay. So I think that. I mean, that was most of their points. I think. Um, but I'll, I'll. Let me. Let me send you the follow up email where I asked if I could share this, and they said. What so they said yes, please share away. Uh, you know, change a couple things and so on. Um, and 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 they say. Uh, uh, but it doesn't matter because the academic administration won't listen to anything outside their own echo chamber anyway, so it probably doesn't matter. True. And what scares me most is that my trusted colleagues, many of them friends, will defend these practices and will openly ridicule, shame, and mock anyone who has any sort of appropriate doubt. I find this alienation for something as simple as critical thought far more terrifying than death, dying, an angry family, or a lawsuit. And wow. they go on to say, I think every generation of healers must grapple with an issue that threatens our patients and our profession. I thought it would be death by a million ICD-10 codes. Now I wish it were just that. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I yeah. guess the only thing I will add to this is that I talk to a lot of people who are infectious disease doctors, pediatric doctors, pediat- chairman of pediatric ID or, you know, uh, or, you know. Cody Meissner. Cody yeah. and uh, even professors in pediatric cardiology. And I would say that. There is a public stance that this person is seeing. There's a Twitter stance. There's a New York Times stance. And there's what people really say. And when you talk to professors of pediatric cardiology and you talk to professors of ID, um, there is a lot more willing. And you and you talk to them the way you have to talk to somebody where you call them on the phone or you have a beer with them. There's a lot more willingness to say, yeah, you, you, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. You, yeah, you're right about the, you know, they all concede. They concede um, that there's a lot more nuance here, um, yeah. you know, and and uh, and some of the things they push back on me are say is, um, you know, they say things like, um, uh, yeah, but we just need to have a consistent message. We just need to have consistent. And so I always say this yeah. to them. I always say this to them. I'd say one, I would say um I would say, uh, what is the consistent message? That's my first question. And the answer is, as and, and, and then they say, oh, well, you know, everyone should get uh, three boosters or two, you know, whatever. They start to say their message. And then I say, well, what about J&J? Uh, oh, well, in that case, then you should get a J&J, but then you should go on and get, okay, so then what about Moderna? And then they say, well, yeah, and there's a, what about if it's a Moderna and it's a 24-year-old boy? Well, you know, okay, they could be a little bit different there. And then they say, what about if it was, um, uh, you know, so they start to make all these caveats. And by the time they're yeah. done, they, it, the, the truth is that it's not a simple message because you know what? Medicine, it, it's not always simple, okay? You got to live with it. It's not always simple, and sometimes it's complicated, and you need to have nuance. So what are you talking about? There is no such thing as a simple message this is the simple message we're working it out you know and so i think they'll concede that and then the other thing i say is that what um we're talking about a long game of public trust and i'm not i'm not convinced that simple messages that result in bad policy for some people are superior to highly nuanced messages that result in better policy for more people so i mean the point would be that that the 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 32 year old nurse who had COVID-19 and recovered and got one dose of the vaccine and her employer is going to fire her if she doesn't get dose two. Okay, this is a question. Um, 
and and they're saying there should be no exemption to that firing policy. But my point is, is maybe there should be an exemption because it makes sense that there would be an exemption. We need her more to do her job, you know, than to be fired, um, especially in this staffing shortage time. And the fact that you're not giving the exemption, it might make the public mistrust you more because you're acting like a capricious t- tyrant who's not driven by science. You're driven by what are you driven by? Just dotting I's and crossing T's for the sake of it? Okay, so this is the perfect segue because you almost answered actually some of the response to this next email because it's this distinction between what we say behind closed doors to each other about the nuance of the situation and what we think in our heads and what the public health message is felt to need to be. A monolithic, simplistic distilling, even though it's not neither simplistic nor distilled most of the time. So can I, can I hit you with a little okay. bit of this? Hit because me. Hit me. Yeah, this is, a, this is a direct criticism of our messaging, which is this nuanced messaging. So this person says it's a, it's a critical care nurse. We don't know the gender. And says, I know you read your emails. Uh, I know you care about your supporters. I know you're open to reevaluating things. I value your opinions and satire and et cetera. Now, she says, now that I've stroked your ego, I'm going to deflate it because I think you've turned down a dark road. Look in your comment section and you'll see you've collected a cohort of anti-vaxxers and vaccine skeptics. Take a hard look in the mirror and realize you're becoming an influencer, the likes of a Joe Rogan, but with a doctor in front of it. That's collecting and persuading anti-vaccination to COVID-19. You're collecting and persuading in the way that Andrew Wakefield could never accomplish. I could... I used to send people to your content to consider vaccination that were frustrated with regulations and had fallen into a conspiracy hole. They can relate to your frustration. They can see somebody that was similarly frustrated and educated on the topic, but still made the decision to vaccinate and advocate for it. You had good measured information that um, could help people make an informed decision and would really dig specific into the nitty gritty on developing vaccines, et cetera. Okay, so you now you now have the credibility of somebody who's traditionally pro-vaccine. You've had your kids take their shots on YouTube. You've been vaccinated, but your content screams that your risk is so low that you really don't need to do it. I think she's, he or she is talking about our content. That is very convincing, don't get vaccinated message. If you read the comments from your recent podcast, you'll realize you have a collection of these people. Okay, and then they go on to say, um, there'll be school-aged children without parents because they've made decisions not to get vaccinated watching your content. And then they go on to describe their ICU experience and they say, I don't know what the new variant holds. Maybe it's a blessing in disguise, we don't know, but we do know that Delta's been brutal and culling people off like no time before. I've lost people that have been double vaccinated. I lost an individual who was triple vaccinated and was not immunocompromised, but older. I've lost several J&J vaccinated, so far zero Moderna. I've experienced several near-term seven, eight, nine-month stillborns post-infection, either from lack of oxygen, from mothers who are otherwise healthy, so these are pregnant moms with COVID, et cetera. I've seen ECMO, so they go through all this terrible stuff that they've seen. And then we are emotionally and physically drained. We're short-staffed. The norm is three patients in the ICU. Everyone is tripled. There's a code white and you're taking the fourth critical patient. It doesn't matter if two of them are running CRRT, three are prone on pressors, Nimbex, multiple sedation drips, 10 to 12 channels per patient with a cooling blanket, all the isolation gear, just get the charting done alone, let alone patient care, medication. So you feel this horror, right? Just reading so far. And then, you know, and, 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 you know, then an administrator is buying us pizza. And let me tell you, you know, the public is especially stupid. 
in determining risk of severe disease. Most of the people who are obese and have type two diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, AFib, come in like they're, well, I'm only 48 and I'm pretty active and I don't have preexisting conditions, I'm gonna be all right. No, you have like half the possible preexisting conditions. People are absolutely awful in determining how risky it is for them. And you are going out and giving them basically a wedge through which they can say, I don't need this vaccine. Please reconsider, I'm paraphrasing. Mm. Thoughts? Interesting. Well, yeah. uh, I appreciate it, but uh, I guess- I do too, I, I guess, do too. I guess, I mean, I appreciate that. I feel like the person is honest and I feel like the person is trying their best to be fair as they see it. And I guess here's where I would kind of, what I would articulate. One, I think, one thing I, I just have to say is that I've seen this allegation be made um, previously, not just, not to us, but to like anybody, which is like, look who retweets you, look who likes you, look who follows you, look yeah, who comments. look who comments. Okay, that's not a fair argument against anybody because the purpose of putting out any piece of scholarship or any piece of writing or any piece a book is that, um, you know, what if, what if Saddam Hussein's favorite book is Moby Dick? Does that mean Moby Dick is a bad book? You know, like you, you can't judge, you can't judge the, the work by the people who gravitate to the work. Um, and and I, I use an extreme example, but the truth is that like anything, like any, like any, com, like any, any sort of analysis, there's going to be a range of people. There's going to be a lot of pro-vax people who enjoy this. There's a lot of people who are looking for nuance. There might be some people who are vehemently opposed to vaccines who like parts of what we say if they misconstrue it, et cetera. The next thing I would say when it comes to vaccination, at least I, I, I think, you know, I think you and I are pretty aligned, which is that we have always only encouraged adult vaccination. I'm trying to think of, yes. have, I, have I ever- For everyone. For yeah. everybody. The only, place, <laughs> yeah. the only places where I've drawn carve-outs, I would say, are places that they should have been drawn. One, a woman probably should have gotten mRNA instead of J&J &J if they're under 50. I think we said that in one yep. of our episodes. I think, yep. um, like many European nations, uh, I, I do think if it's a man under 30, they should think about Pfizer rather than Moderna. Um, yep. But but this this is not my point of view. This is the point of view of the nation of Germany. Uh, you know, sweet, right. You know, this is the point of view of Denmark. Um, so these are really well established points of view. Um, but I I think I've only always encouraged uh, adults and you too to get vaccinated because the risk reduction is massive. Um, and you know, I have an inbox full of, and I'm sure like you, of people who've been vaccinated simply as a result of this communication. The next thing I would yeah, say, me too, um, is, uh, um, you know, uh, I, I agree with this person that there are very likely some people who underestimate their risk and don't get vaccinated. And I think we need to work on correcting them. But I'm not sure talking about real nuance around children and myocarditis is the thing that they are, is the thing that's led them to their decision. They've already reached their decision and then, you know, they're rationalizing in whatever way they want. And they're not really exactly. paying attention to the fact that you're 48, you have AFib. Yeah, you know, you're not, you're not a spring chicken. You should be getting vaccinated for sure. Um, I can tell, you know, um, w w one of the other points that I wanted to make was, um, okay, the other thing about it is that, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess my, my only guiding philosophy is trying to tell the truth from a scientific standpoint as I see it. And I wouldn't be telling the truth if I was not acknowledging that policy should be a little bit different for school age kids, particularly those who've had the virus. Um, one of the things on, you know, I'm about to do the, I'm going to do the news with you. I'm going to talk about LA. They're about to throw out 34,000 yeah. kids. Um, you know, mm. that's also a harm of this. Um, so I guess what I would say is that, you know, if you misconstrue what we're saying as being 
anti-adult vaccination or even anti-kids vaccination, which we're not. We're really about trying to be pro-adult vaccine and pro-safe vaccination of children. So maximizing the benefits, minimizing the harms and also pro proper ways to generate evidence. Um, and I do think as, as, as far as I see it, like, um, we are not the problem. I think it's the zealots that are the problem in both directions. Zealotry, yeah. fundamentalism is always the problem. Nuance is not the problem. And in fact, the more you are a fundamentalist, the more you invite fundamentalism in opposition to you. If you were more nuanced, they'd be less fundamentalists in both directions, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good analysis. I'll add a few points yes. here because, first of all, I really respect this person for taking the time to write this big, long message. They're hurting, clearly, and they've seen a lot, and they're traumatized, and they're understaffed, and, you know, I totally get it, right? Now, what you said about fundamental, fundamentalism provoking fundamentalism, why do you think our comment section may have a few anti-vaccine people in it? Because they've been absolutely alienated by the mainstream messaging, which is so fundamentalist that they feel like they don't, they can't even have a rational conversation. Maybe they've been naturally infected and they want to talk about that, whatever. So they, they will use their confirmation bias to pick out of our arguments, anything that supports their ideology now, and they can find it. You can find it anywhere. Right. Yeah. And so that, 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 you know, again, judging the content by the comment section is insanity, but I'll say this, what we're seeing here is in these descriptions, it's still really arguing the point that people with any comorbidities, age, obesity, whatever, ought to be vaccinated and probably boosted, right? And what yeah. this person is is bringing here is a, a, a bit of a, a certain bias, which is they're seeing the sickest of the sick dying everywhere and they're in an unsupported environment. So of course their worldview is gonna be shifted in that direction. They would love to see an absolutist point of view. What they may not understand, in my opinion, is that that absolutist point of view has failed. Yeah. It, it has not convinced people to vaccinate the way, say you and I might, because yeah. we're getting the email saying, look, I was on the fence. And they start the message saying, that's why I used to send people to you. So what's changed then is what I would argue. Is, is it because you and I talk? I, I don't understand, you know, but, but again, I want to think about this more because this actually is something that I care about a lot. I mean, I think that uh, the, the, the person writing in and we are in a 100% agreement that an adult with comorbidities should be vaccinated yeah. and boosted, very likely boosted. Yes, I will even say that even though I'm still waiting to read that Pfizer randomized control trial, I think that's very likely the case from looking at the Israeli right. data. Um, we agree on what the goal is. So... Uh, I think the place, I, I mean, maybe even you and I might disagree a little bit, which is, um, you know, what's the right way to handle vaccination for a five-year-old who had SARS-CoV-2 and recovered? I'm going to talk to you a little right. bit later in the show about the Germany data. But for me, the, right, it, yeah. the right way to handle it is, is to say something like, there is massive uncertainty here. We don't really know for sure. We know if it's a healthy five-year-old, the risks are of getting the virus are almost as low as they come. We're not really sure that vaccinating this kid is going to help grandma. I mean, if we're perfectly honest, I don't think we know that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I think we could have done a better job of running a larger randomized control trial. In fact, I think the FDA uh, had failed because they could have demanded a 300,000 person randomized trial. I think people would have enrolled. Proof they would have enrolled is 1 million people enrolled their kids to get vaccinated in one week. Um, these people are eager. Right. So they could have enrolled. So we would have had some data. Um, so, um, uh, okay, so so that's a point of view that this person might feel differently. I think this person might say that uh, all five-year-olds should get two doses right away, and anyone who says otherwise um, is bad. And maybe this person will go further and say all five-year-olds should get two doses right away, and if they don't get two doses by February 1st, we should throw them out of school. 
And um, they might hold that view. I think that's a, that's another point of view. And I guess what I would say is, um, if 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 you're saying I should hold that view because it will help the 48 year old with AFib get vaccinated, I just don't believe that's true. I also don't believe your view is right, and I believe your view is harmful. That if you really, I mean, let's imagine the policy: every five year old has to get two doses by February 1st, or we throw them out of school. That is a very strong arm view. If we did that, there will be lots and lots of children, more black children than Asian children, more black children than white children who will be thrown out of school in this country. Their lives will be forever altered and we'll be doing it over a virus with a risk to them that, that particularly if they're a healthy kid, that is really, really low. And I think it's not justified from a policy standpoint. Um, yeah. I also want to say one point about vaccines in times of peace and crisis, which is I think we forget that... Um, uh, you know, you and I, you much more than me, I mean, in the pre-COVID era, you know, you talked about vaccines and, um, you know, you've always been, I think, uh, a tremendous force of good in getting people to think importantly about vaccination um, and, and, and to embrace it. And you've probably done a lot to combat misinformation in that space. I think we have to acknowledge that right now we are in a time that's different. It's not a time of peace. It's a time of war. And in wartime, there are lots of things you don't know. You just don't know as much about things right now, new new vaccines, as you know about old vaccines. And so messaging, it just can't be the same um, dogmatism and persuasion. It has to be more uncertain and more embracing nuance and allowing for the fact that reasonable people can disagree. I think uh, on some things, like should a 16-year-old boy get boosted? Um you know, question mark right now, as of today, yeah. they've authorized it. But to my knowledge, this is a unique FDA authorization because in cancer medicine, we've we've approved some drugs with uncontrolled studies of 40 people. I believe this is the first time we've ever authorized something with literally zero people in clinical trials because this age group had not been studied for boosting. I think you need to be able to talk about that, have some debate about it. Um, yeah. And, and then yeah. The, and the other thing is like smart people do debate this. So, you know, Waleed Jalad's a professor at Pittsburgh. He's not a dummy. He's a really bright guy. He follows this really closely. He acknowledges that these are not black and white issues. And maybe that's the point here, which is that, yes, some things are black and white. The 45-year-old getting vaccinated, that's black and white. Do it. Do, are you listening? Do Yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the five-year-old who recovered from COVID getting two doses, that's not black and white. And it's okay to mm -hmm. wait a little bit. It's okay to think about it a little bit more. It's okay to, it's okay to change your mind and, and then suddenly and do it in March. You know, I think that's fine. There are all sorts of things. And, and this nuance actually has real world ramifications. For example, the spacing of the two doses, you know, the data saying maybe a spacing amount's a little bit better. Well, that was a nuanced discussion in the beginning that people were closed off about having. And, you know, the, these sort of things, the fact that different countries do them things differently means there's nuance. So I think it's okay, but I think it's important to listen to these perspectives, right? And I like, I think, we do have an interesting platform that people do listen to it and they it will feed their confirmation bias, even though we're advocating for this alt middle perspective of trying to look at your bias. I think it's important to, that, that we play devil's advocate with each other as much as we can. So that's good. So want to do the news? Yes, let's do the news. Um, yeah. Let's do the news. Okay. 
this is the segment that that uh, that's my job to put together. It's called in the news. <laughs> in the news, but you know, because because I don't know if you know this, Zubin, but this is a news show. It's predominantly a news. I show. I was unaware. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't I thought it was all opinion. That's perfect. <laughs> I, I want you to give me the same. I want you to give me the Cuomo treatment on this show. You know, whatever I do, oh. you just whitewash oh. it. <laughs> give me give me the full Cuomo treatment because this is the news. It's the hard hitting stuff. Okay, in the news. According to NPR, pro-Trump counties now have far higher COVID death rates. Misinformation is to blame. So NPR Ooh, great NPR has pointed out that there is this correlation that you observe in data, which is, well, in, in an analysis by NPR, NPR looked at deaths across uh, 3,000 counties. People living in counties that went for Trump had 2.7 times the rate of death as countries that went for Biden, blah, blah, blah. Trump voters don't get vaccinated. Trump voters more likely to die. That's the, the headline. By the way, this is part of the healing process. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. To yeah. single them out. So I guess I'm... Yeah. Um, I have some thoughts, but I'm curious what, I don't know, how do you react to hearing that kind of headline? Yeah, you know, the minute I saw that show up in my Apple feed, I think I'd sent it to you, but yeah. I hadn't I hadn't really digested it. It, 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 it. it triggered me because I said, you know, this is exactly the kind of polarizing bullshit that the media loves to do now. Yeah. Like, because you know people are going to click on that out of outrage. And th- this is how they, this, this was interesting. First of all, they excluded states that... Um, had had a were, were interesting like Hawaii and Alaska because they didn't have the right data sets they exclude from this, and what they found was uh, you know they were looking at these numbers of like deaths and stuff. Now what they don't talk about is the correlation causation kind of algorithm. Okay, so more Republican states, does that means being a Republican means you're more likely to die of COVID because of something being Republican caused? Or could it be that the states in the center of the country that aren't in the coastal elite have economic circumstances that are different? There's more obesity, there's more diabetes, there's more chronic disease, which makes their population more susceptible to the effects of COVID, vaccinated or not. Um, could that be a component of it? And so I think about that as a, as a confounder, like maybe these are economic issues, like San Francisco is vastly more opulent than, you know, you know, nowhere middle of Idaho somewhere. And then the other thing I think about is, well, okay, let's say it is true that Republicans are less likely to get vaccinated because of X, Y, and Z, and they're dying more often because unvaccinated people are the ones that fill up the ICUs and are more likely to die by a statistical, large statistical margin. Why is that? Well, it could, is it entirely random because the person, you know, the, 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 the cards aligned, like there's nothing in the Republican nature that makes them anti-vaccine. Correct. It's the way all the cards have aligned. It so happens that Biden's been pushing vaccines while Republicans will have ideological reactance to it. Like, so why do we stoke it further with an NPR, which is often considered to be very liberally biased? Um, why do we stoke it further with media pieces like this instead of a really nuanced piece that would actually look at a what can we do to actually decrease deaths? So I think about it the exact same way. So my first thing I think about is, is the top line finding true? And I guess the top line finding is meant to draw a causal inference, which is it isn't that um, the, it's the reason these people are, are dying more and the reason they're not as vaccinated is because they're supporting Trump and he's giving them misinformation. That's, I think, the causal pathway. They support him. He gives them bad information. He's killing his own constituents. I think that's what they want you to think. And the first thing Correct. I think about is they haven't really proven the causality. They have 
found an association and what are the other things that might explain the association? So I think you've named, I think some of them. Um, I think the biggest one to me is class. Um, they're, Vaccination has always been, or at least in the, la- in, the in, in, in the short term, last 10 years, it is tied to class. Um, people who are wealthier, uh, highly educated, much more likely to embrace it. As a general rule, of course, there's po- there are always some fringe pockets. Um, then people who have less education, um, who are uh, less urban. Um, so, so that's one potential bias. Um, and that also has some correlation, I think, with political valence. So it's not necessarily that it's the politics driving it, it's the class. Um, the second thing I would say is I think you're right, comorbidities, which also tie to class and socioeconomic status, that's also there. Um, so I, in order to disentangle this, it will take a very sophisticated analysis, and no offense to NPR, they're not equipped to do such an analysis. They just don't have the tools, they don't have the people who can do it. Um, this is a very sophisticated political science and regression analysis um, that's going to require a, a lot of expertise and, and causal inference expertise, and they just don't have it. So I think this is the type of, um, what is it called? This new journalism of quantitative journalism that often is like, uh, it, it often does a disservice because numbers can be more deceptive than anecdotes um, when, when you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, then the next part of the equation is, um, uh, why did this happen if it's true? If there is some political valence, and I don't discount the fact that there's zero political valence, I just don't think it accounts for the full effect. There might be some, and and I think, right? I don't know. I mean, imagine a different world. Imagine Trump had won re-election, um, and in fact, if he had the re-election today, he might pull it out. Imagine Trump had won re-election, and imagine he took the reins of the vaccine and said, "This isn't just a this isn't a COVID vax. This is the Trump vax. I made it." He says, "I created." Um, uh, Operation Warp Speed. I gave you the vaccine. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't have gotten it so fast. What if he said that? What if he went crazy about it on TV? And he just went everywhere. And he's like, you know what? This vaccine, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful vaccine. It's one. It's wonderful. It's the perfect thing. It's going to cure you right up. It's huge. It's huge. It's huge. The effect size is huge. You know, I kept telling the folks at Pfizer, they said, we want 50% relative risk. I say, I want 95%. Uh, if it's not 95, I'm not. I want 95%. They said, we can't do it, Mr. Trump. We can't do it. They said, 95. And then they got, oh my God, 95. You know, well, imagine he said that. And then imagine he said this. He said, you know what? We're going to give you two. We're going to give everyone two. We've already bought it for you. It's going to be beautiful. And then he also says, he says, in fact, we're going to even give you, a, we'll give you a booster. I got an extra one for you just in case you need it. And you know, what if he said, um, you know, we don't need to wait. We don't need to wait for that kid's vaccine trial. After all, it's underpowered. Let's just go ahead and give EUA for five and above. I mean, you know, he could say that, right? He says, I told FDA, we just go ahead, EUA five and above. We just do like a, a quick phase one. We don't need randomized trial. After all, it's underpowered. It's not going to give you much info. I know that. They, some people say you have a knack for this. You're the smartest person who's ever looked at vaccines. I say, oh, really? Am I that smart? Yeah, that's what they say. To me. They tell me. They tell me that I'm so smart. You know? Okay, so he said all this. Okay. <laughs> okay. So imagine he does all this. Then who's going to get the vaccine? I think his supporters are going to get the vaccine. And who's going to be the ones who start going on TV complaining like like I complain? You don't know about myocarditis and you, you your sample size is too small. Pe- Pe- it's going to be... Peter Hotez. It's, yeah. yeah, it's going to be... <laughs> exactly. yeah. yeah. And actually, that's unfortunately one of the problems with Peter is that he's positioned himself as so much of a partisan and um, right. that I think... A lot of people have. A yeah. lot of people have. And I, Good doctors have positioned themselves in these really difficult, you know... Yeah. And I, te- I, tease, I tease President Trump, but I must admit that, you know, when he used to come on TV, I was, I was as captivated by him as anyone else. I mean, if I'm honest with myself, like, 
I can't look away when he's on TV. He's something about him I, is magnetic I, when I watch him. He, we, you know, we talked about this. That's why I, I wish he had used his powers a little bit more for promoting vaccine because mm. he is such a compelling speaker. Terrible when you read him written. Correct. Like it's, this is why the media loves to quote him like in these little segments. Yeah. But when you watch him, you're like, oh my god, like ugh, that guy's I don't really think, too good. I don't at think what the people does. realize they're like, oh, he repeats himself so often. I was like, that's the hallmark of somebody no, no, no. who's a very effective speaker in a big room yeah. where it's hard to always hear what they're saying. It's echoey. It's a big yeah. room. There, he has a lot of the hallmarks of somebody who is a very captivating. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, that's separate. He's intuitive about He's it. Intu- too. He, yes. just he, he, he just knows. He's intuitive about yeah. it. Anyway, yeah. anyway. Yeah. But anyway, okay, so, so back yeah. to my point. Like, let's imagine he pushed for it hard. If he had won re-election, I think he would have, Zubin. I t- I'll tell you why. It the the the, um, the press release of Pfizer occurred what three days after the election, something like that. Um, had he won re-election, he would have embraced it because he would have seen it as an opportunity to take credit for what he did. I mean, he did fund Operation Warp Speed. Um, yes, other people yeah. advised him to do so, but you know, he did go along with it. So it, it is okay. Had he done that, I think you would have seen um, the class would have still gone the other direction. So I'm not I'm not saying that New York and San Francisco wouldn't be highly vaccinated. I think we would be highly vaccinated, but I do think his supporters would have a much higher rate of vaccination um, uh, as a result. However, the moment he lost the election and the moment the other side took the power, I think the Democrats did a few things that would make his supporters, I think, less likely to embrace vaccination. And some of those things are. There is one part of, I think, Republican and right of center ideology, which is they are they don't like things done by force from the government. I mean, I think that is a core principle. And so the moment we moved to mandates and all that talk of passports, that talk of passports was not helpful. Um, Passports for movie theaters, passports and other countries did do passports. I mean, it's it's not helpful for people who hold the view that they don't like government intrusions on personal choices. Um, even though this may, to some degree, it's not a personal choice. It's also a choice for others, but they don't like that. And so, yes, we have to ask ourselves, did our polarized media environment um, drive some of these people away? And that absolutism that I think one of your uh, callers or you know letter writers was pointing out that we don't have, absolutism may drive these people away more than it drives left of center people um, who seem to embrace yeah, absolutism. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think um, it's interesting because the moral the moral palette of conservatives is more nuanced and complicated. Actually, it has more sort of reliance on sort of uh, authority versus subversion, liberty versus oppression, sanctity versus degradation than the liberal palette, which Jonathan Haidt described in the Righteous Mind, his book, which really relies on fairness versus cheating and care versus harm more as taste buds. We all have all these taste buds, but conservatives value them slightly differently. So understanding those taste buds makes for better communication, which means if you, and that's why that person who sent the email, they said, you know, I used to send people to you that were concerned about government overreach and these kind of things because you seem to understand their concerns. Well, what that means is I understand their moral palate. I may even share some of their moral palate, right? So I think that's important, but when you get an absolutist stance, you say, I am a liberal this, that, and this is my stance, and everything is filtered through the stance, well, you've already alienated alienated half the population and you're not you're not going to influence them in fact you're going to cause them to entrench and search for ways to rebuke you so i think you know you know what what is weird though what is interesting with the misinformation component because yes. that's the other thing misinformation is to blame you know yeah there's misinformation everywhere but 
the question is, the average Joe does not have the, the tools and the capacity to actually dig through it, which is why I think stuff like you and I try to do where we dig through the nuance around it while still debunking stuff that's total crap on all sides of this. Like it may be a, a orthodox position. I think that's important. I think a lot of people get some value out of that. And let's talk about one other misinformation as long as the pot's calling the kettle black, which is that um, this article, of course, in NPR, which, by the way, I listen to a lot of NPR. I love NPR. But, uh, me too. You know, yeah, but, me too. But uh, it's, it's what a, a, a liberal San Franciscan like I'm me would do. I'm Terry Gross. Yeah, right. I mean, but exactly. it's what a liberal San Francisco, <laughs> highly educated person like me would like. Okay, sure. But yep, um, yep, yep, let's, yep. let's go the other way. Um, th- there is misinformation. So, yes, you can say that there are some people on the right who promote misinformation about vaccines. True. Absolutely. What about the people on the left who promoted misinformation about schools, who repeatedly lied about how Ooh. lethal the virus is to children, which kept schools closed mm. for a year, which has crippled the lives of millions of children? It will have massive ramifications. What about the misinformation on the left? It's so bad that when they survey Democrats and they say, what's your chance of being hospitalized if you have COVID-19? You know, the Republicans are actually closer to the true number. The Democrats have wildly inflated estimates in their mind. They don't even know. They're not even in the ballpark of the real number. They're they're delusionally panicked about it. And so... um, if you were, if you believed that it was that higher risk, you would, you know, sacrifice so many things of daily life to combat that risk. But that's all irrational misinformation that's in the pages of the New York Times. The New York Times has put mm. out, you know, nothing but misinformation in the terms of anecdotes about kids and bad outcomes that has mm. that kept schools from reopening in liberal strongholds. So yes. Mm. I, I, I don't I'm not happy when I hear people on the far right have misinformation about vaccines. I'm not happy when they have misinformation about ivermectin. I'm not happy to hear misinformation on hydroxychloroquine. I'm also not happy on the left when they have misinformation about kids and schools. You know, misin- we're, I, I'm trying to call the balls and strikes as I see them. Um, I, I'm, I, I have progressive beliefs, um, but um, uh, more than anything, I'm a, an empiricist and, a, and, a, and just a, a, a quant. Uh, uh, rather than an ideologue. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think all of that is a very good nuanced way to look at misinformation. And so that's why I, I didn't really appreciate this particular piece of quantitative journalism as advancing the cause of understanding better. I, I think it is very much aimed at that NPR audience, which which honestly it is you and me. Like I, I tell you five years ago I would have I would have eaten that up. I would have been like, yeah, these Republicans. Now I'm like, oh look at this piece. Oh look what last they're doing point. here. The fact the fact they even <laughs> yeah. wrote this story actually hurts the issue, doesn't it? It just gets liberals yeah. to get angrier at conservatives and yep. makes them more entrenched. So actually ironically NPR is to blame to some degree, you know NPR. Yeah. NPR spreading misinformation. <laughs> I mean, also, I mean, I just had, I just have to say, like, they're not. Uh, this is this is not just about this story. I always see these stories where it's like we collected data. I have to tell you, journal, you uh, data journalists, you know, you know, if you if you have not done a lot of this kind of data analysis work, you can use it for very simple sort of things. But you're you're over your pay grade, honestly, with some of these causal inference stuff. You need to hire yeah. a team of experts who are good at this kind of work, or you need to stop doing it. You can't do this really shitty data journalism. Sorry. <laughs> I think yeah, I think it's it's actually it's actually harmful yeah. in the world. Yeah. You know, it's harmful to do this. Yeah, I agree. Now, now I'm not saying censor them or tell them not to do it. I'm just saying do it better. Just do it better. Yeah, just yeah. just just hire somebody who has trained with the the causal inference team. You know, somebody who actually knows some stuff. Okay, Germany study. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know when we talked to Marty on uh, on 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 in the in the live video, which you know people should go back and listen. It was the last episode. It was a fun, yep. it, was a, it was a bolsterous really discussion, fun. really fun. 
Marty's a fun guy. Um, Marty talked about a Germany study, and I went back and I read the preprint, and I thought it was actually brilliant, and so I wrote about it on my Substack. Let me give you what I found. See what your thoughts yes. are. Because I haven't read it yet. And this is the news, Zubin. This is the news. Um, so, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's what we find. Um, every other study, well, sorry, most studies about kids and their health they have the difficulty of figuring out what's the real denominator because like how many kids actually got COVID who just had a tickle in their throat or a runny nose? Um, what's the real denominator for these outcomes? And the answer is most people don't know. Well, here's what the Germany study found. Um, if you're a healthy child with COVID means you don't have any medical problems with COVID uh, and you get COVID-19. So healthy kid with COVID-19, what's the, and um, this is, you know, all, all children under the age of 18. Um, the risk of going to the hospital is 51 per 100,000. The risk of going to the ICU is 8 per 100,000. For healthy kids, the risk of death is 3 per 1 million, with actually there are no deaths reported in kids older than 5 years old. Kids 5 to 11 had a lower risk than kids less than 5 and adolescents 12 to 17. So 5 to 11 is the lowest age group. If you're talking about 5 to 11, mm. the risk of going to the ICU was 2 per 100,000, and zero kids died in all of Germany, healthy kids in that age group. Among kids who did die of COVID-19, unfortunately some kids do die, 38% were already on palliative care at the time, suggesting serious comorbid conditions. Um, right. MISC was less common with the Delta variant. Um, those are the, the general findings. And, and the one thing I want to say off the bat is that um, this study separates kids with comorbidities from kids who are healthy and not overweight. Some people believe that separating these two groups is somehow discriminatory. And I urge them to reconsider that policy because I think it's bizarre and backwards. If you do not provide tailored recommendations to the person in front of you, taking into account their comorbidities, their age, the medicines they're taking, you're not being non-discriminatory. You're actually just being a bad doctor. Because if you lump yes. if you lump all these kids together, the kids with comorbid conditions, you're actually underestimating their risk. Their risk is much, much higher. And you're doing them a disservice because you underestimate their risk. So the 16-year-old overweight with type 1 diabetes, you this data underestimates his risk, yes. But the five-year-old who is not overweight, who doesn't have any medical problems, doesn't take any medicines, if you lump them together, you overestimate that five-year-old's risk. So you provide bad medicine to both people. So we have to take into account all these factors. We will always take into account these factors. Doctors will only give chemotherapy to people with cancer. We won't just give it to people. Some have cancer, some don't. We're not going to lump everyone together. We have to use this information. Anything else is crazy. All right, your thoughts. The, okay, this is, this is, okay, this is so important because <laughs> we talk about personalized medicine. Yeah. We talk about tailoring therapies to the individual, except when it comes to stuff like this, which is actually as life and death as anything, any other therapeutic that we do. And yet, you know, with this, and then, and then I would actually expand this to say, you know, we should take genetics uh, into account. We should take race into account. And people will be like, wait, no, we're supposed to treat everybody equally. No, not as a doctor in terms of therapeutics. If you have an ethnic group or a racial group that's at a higher risk for, say, prostate cancer, you'll be more likely to look at that screen for that at more aggressive prostate cancer, say, I'm just giving an example. Mm -hmm. You would treat that differently. Is that being discriminatory? Yeah, you're discriminating between different risk levels and you're treating appropriately. 
right? You're not you're not treating somebody adversely negatively due to their race, which is you know more prejudice. So so I think I think this is important. So in the Germany study though, the, and if you have any thoughts on that, to follow up. But the MISC rates were lower with Delta. You said correct. Yes, they they established what had been seen anecdotally in U.S. data that MISC to some degree has been uncoupled with Delta. Which, yeah, which is better for kids. I mean, in other words, the new variant is, I mean, slightly, I mean, nobody wants COVID, of course, but it's less MISC. Yeah, 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 yeah. So for some reason, it's less. Now, it'd be interesting to see where Omicron goes with all this because, yeah, yeah. Is it even less so? Is it more, yeah, more common coldish? We don't know I'll make one more side point because this reminds me of something, which is somebody said, um, you know, this, I was talking to some pediatric cardiologist about, um, about vaccination in children and, and adolescent boys. And this person was talking to their chairperson and the chairperson told them, look, at the end of the day, it's so simple. The question is simply this, is it better to get COVID-19 or is it better to get the vaccine as a 12 year old boy in terms of myocarditis, which is more myocarditis? And I actually said, you know, we were talking on the phone and I was telling this person, uh, the truth is there's lots of uncertainty. There, uh, the myocarditis estimate after COVID-19 doesn't use the seroprevalence denominator. So I've actually written to the German authors and I asked them to provide that estimate. I think they have that data. They could do it. So we really don't know. We, mm. If you use the denominator of, among kids who present to the hospital with COVID-19, of course, there's going to be more myocarditis with COVID-19, but the denominator should be right. all the kids with the infection. In the vaccine side right. of the ledger, you do know how many vaccines you gave. So you have a solid denominator and you have a decent numerator. And we know those rates, you know, about one in 5,000 in that age group. So then that allows us to sort this out. But my next point to this person was a different point, which is that um, the vaccine is is manufactured to very high standards. And it's the same today as it was seven months ago. It's the same product. But the virus is not the same. It's always shape-shifting. It's always changing. And so if you make a static comparison of bad hospitalization versus vaccine risks, um, it only accounts for the past. It doesn't account for what the virus may be in the future. And your point is well taken. We have no idea about Omicron. Um, We just don't have that data. Right. Although now, you know, Pfizer is talking about, well, our, uh, um, you know, press release data basically says that if you, you know, if you boost, oh, God. you have more resistance in vitro to, you know, Omicron. It's yeah. like, oh, my God. Well, I mean, you know, I did. A, I, I would. Yeah. Go yeah. No, I did a long interview. No, no, I, mean, uh, uh, I went down to visit John Unides at Stanford and we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Um, and mm. uh, and one of the points is, is that like they're treating the antibody tighter for booster. Um, this in vitro assay of neutralizing antibody as a, like a rock solid surrogate. And the truth is it's a very uncertain surrogate. And the, the thing that you really care about is if you are boosted or unboosted and you get Omicron, what's your risk of hospitalization? The answer is we just don't know. Yep. We care about clinical endpoints, yep. not surrogates. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a big surrogate. I mean, and and it's a surrogate that's then even further surrogated by press conference. Right. And and I so it I, again, it's just we we have to accept that there's a lot of uncertainty here, and that the way the media will actually portray this is is not it it. it it's much more black and white the way the media headlines sound, and it's not right. So this is important because you know markets move based on something Moderna's president says, you know, yes. about well, we think our in vitro assays show that uh, Omicron's likely going to escape, so it's going to take a while to spin up a new thing that we're going to charge a bunch of money for. It's like, well, okay, that's going to move markets, even though it's like again. It's coming out of your ass, more or less, in terms of actual outcomes that matter, which are hospitalization, death, severe disease, et cetera. The last thing to talk about before we, and I want to say, give us a big chunk of time to talk about this, because um, this was something really interesting. This uh, 
Maybe you'll introduce it because I've written down. I have an answer to him. Okay. Um, oh. Medlife Crisis, um, who is a YouTuber par excellence. Uh, he has asked yes. us, you guys point to a lot of the deficiencies in the current paradigm. What are the solutions? What would you have us do? Um, something like that. How would you say it? What did he ask us? He wants solutions. Yeah, he, he basically said, you know, in a positive way, yes. what are some positive policies that might happen that would lead us in a good direction? So instead of talking about problems, what are some solutions that might be positive, says Dr. Roheen Francis, who is MedLife's real name. And he's a great, he's like one of the great communicators, actually. I really respect him a lot. So we thought, hey, let's try to dive into this maybe. Um, okay. And I haven't really thought about it much. So I, I'm going to I'm gonna hand it back to you. <laughs> okay. I'll go first, and then while I talk, you'll think <laughs> yeah. about it. Um, yes. I agree with you. I love his videos, and uh, he's a talented guy. Um, okay, so here's what I'd say. You want solutions? I'll give you solutions. Okay, number one. Um, uh, uh, we One of the most vulnerable points currently where we can clearly have solutions is fixing the hospital infrastructure. We have massive st- staffing shortages. We have massive um, uh, ability that if there's a bad surge in a lot of places in this country, the hospitals are going to get overwhelmed rather quickly, and we're going to have catastrophic health outcomes. Because the moment a hospital is overwhelmed, the CFR, the case fatality rate, balloons. You know, it balloons everywhere. So here's what we can do. One, staffing. We need to immediately, as Marty talked about in the prior podcast, loosen the requirements for vaccination, acknowledge natural immunity in an effort to get more people who can work. That's one thing. You don't need to be so rigid. If somebody has antibodies against this virus, then I would say you should waive all vaccination requirements for such a person. We need the bodies. We need your we need your effort more than we need your vaccination status, to be honest with you. Let's do that, especially in places in this country where hospitals have are short staffed. That's one. Two. Um, yes, yes, more flexibility, yes, yes, more flexibility yes. in the vaccine. Um, yes, in a perfect world, every healthcare employee gets, you know, doses every year for the rest of their lives. But let's just take maybe have one to start. Let's just get everyone one dose. If they want to work with one dose, maybe that's a compromise. So, you know, sometimes in life you have to compromise. OK, Co- learn to compromise. OK, yeah. that's one Two, elect anti. Uh, I'm, <laughs> let me put this politely. Um Hospitals, although they are nonprofits, they often operate very close to the margin because that maximizes revenue. This has always been the case. I don't think people realize. Hospitals always operate close to the margin to maximize revenue. That's a product of our system that protects them with a nonprofit status, but still incentivizes them to generate maximal revenue. After COVID-19, they did take a one-quarter hit in terms of profit um, in the hospital. And since then, they have done a lot to try to recoup those profits. They've also vigorously scheduling elective surgeries, et cetera. Now, all elective surgeries are not created equally. Um, Some elective surgeries are very important, like making a cancer diagnosis. But some elective surgeries are cosmetic, and some elective surgeries are, um, they don't have to be done right away. And some elective surgeries may be unnecessary, such as the overdiagnosis of many um, very small, uh, you know, papillary thyroid cancers, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many things that, you know, we do too much surgery. Right now, there needs to be a moratorium on elective BS surgery. You need to stop doing this. We need to incentivize hospitals not to keep providing low-value care to get their bottom line higher because there may be a surge in some places and you cannot afford to have the beds unavailable. It baffles, it blows my mind that we're this far into the pandemic and I hear about hospitals that are can easily tip over with just a small bolus of patients. Are they not ready or prepared for expanding their capacity? They need to get ready. So this is one huge thing we could do. Next things, Mm. next category of things. Um, 
Uh, oh, sorry. Back to this hospital thing. I have a few more things I wrote. Hazard pay. You know, um, why are people quitting in droves? There are lots of reasons. But one thing is, yeah, maybe you need to start paying them more, especially nurses and other people. Um, and you need to change the incentive so that the traveling nurse can't make three times as much as the nurse doing their day job. So I think everyone, you know, they need a raise. And you know what? These hospitals need to stop stop pretending that they don't have the money. They received a massive bailout of like $200 billion. They've got the cash. Yeah. They can do it. Um, okay. The next category of things I have is, uh, you know, it's never too late to actually learn to collect some data. We need a website that has daily random zero prevalence. What is the zero prevalence in co- county by county randomly day, day, every single day or at once a week and post it on a website so people can see where, where is natural immunity? How much is it? They have never generated this in a robust way in real time. That's shameful. Um, so I think that we could do that. That will actually help us figure out where are the places that are more vulnerable that need to have hospital capacity this winter and maybe in the, in, in the months to come. Um, the next thing I've written here is randomized control trials. Uh, you know, I know they're not very fashionable or cool, but you know, there's nothing that, um, has prevent, you know, there's no reason you shouldn't do them even now. It's not too late. Um, Many of these issues are very divisive. And when there's a divisive issue with scientific uncertainty, you should do a randomized trial. It's not too late to do one for school-age children of masking. It's not too late to do more community cluster RCTs of masking, masking policies, mask mandates. You know, uh, they're still done in many cities like San Francisco. Um, That's reasonable to do. There can be randomized trials of you know, a lot of places have implemented vaccine passports. We could be doing some prospective empirical studies to evaluate if they work. What about some studies around testing at the airports? Is that necessary? What about randomized trials of college campuses? These college campuses where, you know, it's like living in uh, Stalin's Russia and then they check you, you know, they make sure they check you all the time um, for SARS-CoV-2. We can do cluster randomized trials at these hospitals. Um, So, uh, sorry, at these these college campuses. And we ought to because then we'll actually learn something. Um, Okay. I have one last category. You ready for it? Oh, man. Go for it. Okay. Um. The major vulnerability, as I see it going forward, is not going to be kids 5 to 11 and getting them vaccinated and throwing them out of school or whatever sort of nonsense you want to do. Um, this is makes, makes you feel good, but it's not the problem. The problem is that even now, there is an urgent lack of boosting in the people who need to be boosted, which is nursing home residents yeah. and old people. Forget, take, pull your head out of your ass (laughs) stop talking about boosting everybody get the people who need boosters boosted and the people who need their first dose dosed yes that's what I'm going to say yeah like Nursing yeah. homes right now, they should be 100% boosted. Um, boosting old people, you should be going door to door boosting people over the age of 65. B- pull your head out of your ass and focus on what matters. And what matters is boosting old people right now. And as you say, getting first doses in older people. Um, without force, I mean, there is a way to win their hearts and minds. It's called compromise. It's to say right now, anyone who in the next month wants to get that first dose, one and done. It's a new policy, one and done. You just get one. It's not perfect. It's not as good as two, but we're compromised. We've learned our lesson. We can't ask for the moon. One dose, you're going to have less AEs. You're going to have most of the benefit. It's going to protect you from most of the death. That's better than nothing. One is better than nothing. You know, know, of course, in, in, in medicine, you always want your patients to quit smoking. Um, but sometimes you say when the patient won't quit smoking, you always say, how about fewer cigarettes a day, right? This is the same yeah. thing. 
Um, I'm, I'm reading an article right now. It says, with too few nurses, it won't take much to overwhelm hospitals this winter. I think the people who have set these these policies, they, they've lost their minds. Having people who are able to work and yeah. willing to work, who have been working and willing to work, that's more important than your mandates. Forget the mandate. Nosocomial spread in hospitals when people are masked is very, very low. Even if the staff is unvaccinated, it's better to have an open hospital that is staffed with unvaccinated people than no hospital at all and to die in the street, okay? It's better. We did, we did, we did fine prior to the vaccine yes. in hospitals. Yeah, we did fine, we did exactly. Fine. Exactly. It's not the place to put the <laughs> like, squeeze. This is, yeah. this is not where you die, not the hill you die on because it's going to backfire. I'm just going to say one thing about this because your point about hospitals being the issue here, yes. our healthcare capacity being the issue, our margins being too narrow, is the central problem yes. of the entire pandemic. If we had a, 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 a expansive hospital capacity, you would not be getting emails from that ICU nurse saying they're, they're each taking care of four ICU patients on hundreds of drips. There would be the capacity, the case fatality rate would drop, and you would not be having conversations about kicking five-year-olds out of school because they're not vaccinated, right. because the media panic would have been less, the actual damage to society would have been less, but what we've done instead is we've overwhelmed our healthcare resources, meaning the humans, and what they do is they go out in the community and tell stories. They say, this is what right. we're seeing, right. it is a disaster. Your husband can't get his appendix out because the ICU is full. Of course, it would have filled up if we had a severe flu season because we're that Correct. marginal Correct. to begin with, and then they put a chokehold on the entire rest of the culture, where now businesses go out of business, schools close, educations are destroyed, lives are destroyed. This is the ripple effect of a fucked up medical Correct. system that can't pull its head out of its ass. And I and honestly, keep going. That's all I want to say. No, I think that you're really hitting the nail on the head, which is that. Um, uh, Everything we do in society to flatten the curve, it was always two things. It was flatten the curve and then raise the line, you know, raise hospital capacity. Um, this yeah. virus is endemic. Uh, I don't know if anyone has, I know there's some some zealots who still think it can be eradicated. I don't know how many deer they want to kill, but they got to kill a lot of deer and, and, <laughs> and, some and ferrets. ferrets probably, yeah, according yeah. to Marty. Yeah, ferrets and deer and, yeah. and even dogs and cats and, and lions at zoos mm. and gorillas at zoos. You're going to have to kill a lot of animals if you want this to go away. It's not going to go away. Mm. It's here forever. And now it's an endemic virus. And what do you do? You life has to go on. Life has to go on. Life is like we he, people will always they're always going to um, have dinner together. Um, they're going to date. They're going to have parties. They're always going to do that. It's never going to stop. That's uncontrollable. You can't control humanity. You need to be prepared that when that happens, predominantly in winter, um, more than summer, predominantly when people are inside in circulated air, um, you know, should you improve ventilation in buildings? Sure. Let's do also, let's, we can do a randomized control trial of that one is ongoing of HEPA filters. Um, but while you're doing all that, the answer is there will be surges. The hospitals have to be ready. Your policy can't be so, so much virtue signaling that virtue signaling takes precedent over actually having nurses who work. And I think that's where we are. Mm -hmm. There, there was very little nosocomial spread, even in the first few waves. After the initial, you know, there was nosocomial spread initially when we didn't know how this was transmitted. But now that we do, negative pressure rooms, wear N95s when you see COVID-19 patients, very little nosocomial spread. Um, the vaccine is not really going to add much there. Losing the work staff is not. Anyway, back to Rohit's point. The overall point is, yes, um, there's lots we could be doing proactively. They're all um, targeted and precision strategies. We're not saying mandates and um 
I, at least I'm not saying that. I don't believe that that's the solution. I don't think that ever was the solution. I don't think it will be the solution. I also think that I don't think people realize this is a, this America and in America, you know, where I'm from, uh, that's not going to go over well. And that's not how American culture deals with problems by f- compelling people with the brute force of the state to do things. Um, it's always by using our ingenuity and being prepared for the fact that life's not always fair and it's not always what you want, but you got to be prepared for what's going to come. Um, so I think that's, that's what I would focus on. Um, and, and focus on do more for those who need more. There are really vulnerable people. They're going to get, um, in a lot of trouble if they're unboosted and encounter this virus in the next two months. Um, and then they go to an ER that's closed. Um, they're going to be in a bad situation. So those are my thoughts. You know, I can pretty much summarize everything you just said for a medlife crisis uh, policy. Yeah. Hey, 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 smoke weed every day. <laughs> I mean, that's basically it. That's basically what you just said. Um, no, no. I mean, all, all, all joking aside, like, no, that that's, that is a thoughtful way to look at what are policy solutions that will actually make things better. And they do focus a lot on our healthcare system because we forget, you know, I said this in the first few months of the pandemic, I'm like, wow, our collapsed and fragile healthcare system that operates on margins is basically destroying the world. Yeah. Like, because this is what's happening. Yeah. And, and, and I said something then, which I think was not correct, but it felt correct, which was, I bet if we never watched the news, if there was no news and we knew nothing about what was going on except what was happening locally that we heard through word of mouth, we would not consider this to be a major, major, major event. It would feel like a very bad flu season or something. Um, And I don't know if that's retrospectively true uh, because there's been hundreds of thousands of deaths, but that's how it felt at the time that there was so much... um, that 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 I think our failed medical system was generating a lot of hysteria around. Yeah. That's how it felt. Well, and I think uh, what we find is well, yeah. John Yonides puts it this way. He says that like our COVID pandemic and response was always it was like starting an opera one octave too high. That you already <laughs> when you start one octave too high, by the time you get to the end of it, you're singing way out of your range, and it's sort of that kind of thing. But I'll give you. I mean, I'll oh, tell man. you, if the same thing had happened 15 years ago. Um, all of the things that we do that we think are reasonable, like uh, shutting down society and living on Zoom, that wasn't an option. So all of the things that I've suggested would have been what we did. We would have expanded yeah. hospital capacity because that's all we could have done. People would have gone to work. Medical students would not be doing Zoom classes. They would be going to work and learning what it's like to practice medicine at a time of crisis, which, by the way, that yes. might happen to them 30 years down the road in their lives. It might happen to them then. Yeah. And so this would have been very, very different. And um, we wouldn't have been battling over, um, you know, uh, uh, that whether or not we should throw children out of school who don't get vaccinated after one year of not having an in-person education because we would never have closed schools for a year because that's crazy. That's just absolutely an insane policy solution to this problem. It's only facilitated by these technology companies, which have actually shackled us to this response. Anyway, we, we, interesting. We've gone on yeah, a that's long a whole time. podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we did it again. Uh, we're going to cause all kinds of interesting discussions, which is exactly what we want. The emails are going to come in and that's great. How do, how do they, you give out the email that does anyone check it? I don't know. 
VPZD podcast uh, <laughs> at Gmail. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, yes. Every, somebody. Yes. Somebody. Some. Somebody's checking it. VPZD podcast it. at gmail.com. Both of us have websites. You can check them out, and we yes. have contact us page. Um, and uh, that's right. And uh, and we like you know a really thoughtful, challenging email. Yeah, we'll walk you through it on the show. Uh, but we got to do the yeah. news because this is a news show. Let's not forget Zubin. I we're in the news. We're in the news. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Man, it's it's I god. I always come away from these just like completely energized to think more about how we can do better, you know? That and I think that's what I I hope our audience is getting out of this. I hope they're challenged a little bit. I hope they disagree with us on things. I hope they're thinking at some things like you and I say, "Oh man, I got all the right arguments against that." That's great. You know, put them down, send them an email, whatever it is, because I think that's what we want to do. This call, it's a discourse, I right? hope that and it's not black and white. I hope that our audience are the kinds of people who, um, if we say one or two things you don't like or disagree with, you'll hear us out to the end. You'll keep listening because yeah. that's what I like to listen yeah. to. I listen to a bunch of podcasts and I often disagree with the people I listen to, but I find them to yeah. be passionate spokespeople for what they're saying. And it gives me ideas for my own work to sort of combat their ideas. And so I think, mm. you know, let's try to create the culture of resiliency that we're complaining about. Let's work on that. Maybe this podcast hopefully will make people resilient. Yeah, we're going to get them anti-fragile as yeah. fudge. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's do yeah. it. Yeah, so guys, do me a favor. Do us a favor. Subscribe to this on your favorite pod, podcast oh, yes. platform and leave a review. It helps us. We've gotten crazy amounts of reviews. This is really awesome. And it really helps us get the message out. So we're deeply appreciative. You don't hear commercials in here and all that yet. So that's a <laughs> yeah, good thing. Yeah, You're yeah. getting this. And you can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, I'm going to be like, okay, guys, a tour with statin. No, no. The statin of choice. It's going to be like this. <laughs> Do you have trouble sleeping? We've got a new mattress. We've got a new mattress for you. How many times do you wake up with low back pain? I've got a new mattress. <laughs> Does your spouse or partner complain about your small penis? Well, I've got the perfect thing. It microns larger. Uh, we measure it in microns. I, 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 that's not the kind of boosting we're talking about on this show. So, okay. <laughs> okay. I got my third dose, son. Uh, yeah, yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. We love you. And, uh, Vinay, we are out. We're out.